Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Bunk, and this is the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, the Holyoke Falcos. September 21st, 1921 was a big day in the city of Holyoke. It was going to be the first professional, major professional soccer game to be played in the city. Uh, it was week two of the American Soccer League's inaugural season. Coming into town were interstate rivals Fall River Football Club, and there was an air of excitement, uh, in part because the Falcos had began the season the week before by defeating this same Fall River Football Club uh, on their home ground. The Holyoke Kilty Band led a parade down Main Street to the, the, the soccer field. Unfortunately for the Falcos and their supporters, Fall River Football Club ultimately won the game by a score of 2 to nothing. The defeat against Fall River uh, at the home opener was the beginning of a miserable run for the Falcos uh, in general. They would win only one more game the whole season, and they finished bottom of the table with two wins, 17 defeats, and three draws. They scored under a goal a game, and they conceded nearly three goals a game. And uh, probably not surprising, they didn't return to the ASL for a second season. So at least in that sense, the participation of the Falcos in the ASL was unsuccessful. I don't want to dwell too much on the failures, and instead, what I'd like to do today is to use the story of the Falcos to illustrate two important things about U.S. soccer history. The first is that local histories are important. If all we look at are the, is the big picture, professional leagues, and the national team, or international competitions, we miss out on a lot of important and interesting history. And the second point is that researching Soccer History USA can be enormously challenging, primarily due to lack of sources. Holyoke, Massachusetts is an industrial community about 100 miles west of Boston. It's situated along the Connecticut River, and the South Hadley Falls of that river provide the community with an abundant and cheap source of electricity. As a result of this, uh, textile and paper mills soon uh, crowded the banks of the river and the canals, and the city became known as the Paper City. Western Massachusetts has uh, a strong tradition of soccer, uh, listeners might remember in the Oneida Football Club podcast, I briefly mentioned the Williston Seminary Football Club from East Hampton, Massachusetts, which is a town very near to Holyoke, and they formed a club in 1860, although we don't have any evidence that they played any games. Nevertheless, it does tell us that football was being played in the area at a very early period. The earliest evidence I have for a, a game featuring people from Holyoke is from 1889, when a team from the Paper City met up against a team from the neighboring city of Springfield. By 1904, the Western Massachusetts Association Football League was uh, functioning. They competed for the league title in the fall, and very soon after, they uh, began a cup competition in the spring called the Woolahan Cup, named after a local bar owner who donated the trophy. 
the forerunner of the Falcos was called the Far Alpaca Football Club, and they joined the league in the 1909-1910 season. Far Alpaca was a textile company in Holyoke, and they specialized in making the linings of men's jackets, and they held a near monopoly on the product for many years. Although the Far Alpaca Football Club was new, the Holyoke Daily Transcript uh, said that they were undoubtedly going to be a quality squad as they were, quote, made up of a number of cracks that have shown on other teams in the city in the past, unquote. And indeed, they showed their quality in their first game, defeating league champs Ludlow. Also in 1909, uh, the Far Alpaca Club began playing in a competition called the Shalu Cup. Uh, generally, this was versus their uh, city rivals, Clan McLaren, and it was, I guess we could call it the unofficial or maybe the official city championship. The game was pretty popular. It was played on Thanksgiving Day annually, and the 1911 contest reportedly drew as many as 2,000 people. In 1910, the league uh, renamed itself the Western New England Soccer Association and counted eight teams as members. Far Alpaca emerged as the dominant club. They won the title four years running. In 1911-1912, they won a local treble, the League, Woolahan, and Shalu Cups. In 1912-13, they scored an incredible 87 goals while conceding just 10. Far Alpaca also competed in regional and national competitions and were successful in those as well. In 1915, for instance, they won the Northern Massachusetts and New Hampshire State Cup, and they reached the final of the Massachusetts State Cup. A few years earlier, they had lost to uh, juggernauts Bethlehem Steel in the American Cup, and they, they, they led the game at uh, halftime before going on to lose by a score of 3-1. to one. Even the Bethlehem Globe appraised the quality of play uh, shown by the Far Alpaca Club. World War I and, uh, well, World War I spelled a kind of a rough patch for the local league. Uh, there were debates about professionalism and the paying of players, and there was also a dispute with the state football association. Uh, and then also the the men who were off at war meant that it was often difficult to field squads. Uh, one of the casualties of the war was the Far Alpaca Football Club itself, which officially disbanded in 1917. Just a few years later, however, in 1920, employees at Far Alpaca formed the Falco Athletic Association Football Club. This was part of a general trend by companies around this period to make recreational and other kinds of opportunities available to their employees. This was, it was hoped that this kind of corporate welfare would, um, would uh, deter the employees from striking or from being attracted to uh, what the company owners deemed as malicious ideologies like socialism. Uh, at Far Alpaca, these efforts included the company-sponsored band, a company-sponsored drama club. Uh, the Far Alpaca company even built a, a theater. 
1920, the local league had reformed, and many of the clubs, like Far Alpaca, were uh, shop teams or those sponsored primarily by uh, companies. You had the Falcos, of course. Uh, Rolls-Royce, the auto manufacturer, had a factory in Springfield, and they sponsored a club. Hendy Manufacturing, perhaps uh, better known for uh, making uh, Indian motorcycles, and Ludlow Portuguese was one of the first non-British sides to compete in the league. The Falcos won the title again in 1920, and they also won the state championship, uh, beating Eastern title holders Gray and Davis convincingly by a score of 8-1. to one. The Falcos also featured some of the area's, or maybe even the country's, top talent. James Downey, for instance, was an inside left who started against the Scottish third Lanark a team in 1921. He contributed to two goals and created other chances. Harry Campbell was a fullback who had played on a New York All-Star team against the English club Pilgrims. And then local lad Jock McKinstry had been invited to try out for the 1920 U.S. Olympic team. As we could see, the Falcos were quite successful for a long period in local and regional competitions. And so perhaps it's not so crazy after all that the Falcos would have been asked to join the American Soccer League. Uh, it, it kind of happened late in the day. Uh, Bethlehem Steel had originally uh, planned on being one of the entries into the league, but there was a dispute about gate receipts, uh, and that would prove to be a, a, a problem, and the Bethlehem Steel would ultimately withdraw from consideration. So the brains behind the ASL, soccer executive Thomas Cahill, approached the Falcos just a month before the start of the season and asked them to join, and they voted to join the league. The support of the company, corporate support, probably helped because fielding a club was a, an expensive proposition. The league required a $500 guarantee and a $50 entry fee, and they also stipulated that each team needed to play in a modern park. Uh, this was important, and one of the, the original eight members of the ASL, the Jersey City Celtics, would ultimately withdraw from the league in November 1921 because they had trouble finding a reliable pitch to play on. The Falcos luckily had the Berkshire Street grounds, which the company had purchased in 1920 exclusively for soccer. And in addition to these expenses, uh, there were uh, travel costs, salaries either paid directly to the players or, uh, or, or um, paid through uh, company jobs, and then upkeep and other expenses. The Boston Daily Globe, a few years later, reported that the Falcos had, uh, quote, lost a lot of money, unquote, and that that, as much as their poor performance on the field, probably contributed to um, their decision to withdraw from the ASL. Uh, we know that they canceled the last two matches of that first season, in part to avoid paying the travel costs, and perhaps the company decided that it didn't want to invest any more in the team, especially considering that they had just built a theater and that they were planning on constructing a 75,000 spindle mill at a cost of $2.5 million. The challenge to 
researchers is to find out exactly how much. And I think this is a good question to also illustrate some of the general challenges to be had in researching soccer history. The first thing is we don't have any ASL records, or at least no ASL records have survived or have been found. And so we don't really have any kind of financial documents or correspondence that might give us some insight into how much it costs to run a soccer club during this period. We also don't have a lot of information from the Far Alpaca Company archives. For one reason, the company had a kind of practiced the very sort of secretive accounting method designed to uh, hide the fact, hide the amounts of money that they had on hand. And this was part of, uh, well, it's unclear, but suffice it to say that they were not very open about their uh, spending and uh, other accounts. Additionally, uh, even if they even if the company was uh, uh more open when it came to uh financial information there doesn't seem to be any trace of soccer in the corporate records uh, at all at, at least the corporate records that I was able to find some of them may have been damaged in a fire and others may have been sold off uh when the company disbanded but nonetheless in the records that do exist there is no mention of the soccer club whatsoever. As a result of these institutional or corporates, the, the lack of institutional or corporate sources, uh, I was forced to rely on newspapers. And newspapers are one of the best and most important sources for soccer history in the U.S., but they also come with challenges. And one of the challenges, at least related to the Falcos, is uncovering this financial information. We know that gate receipts were an important part of each club's financial picture, and this was the reason, of course, that Bethlehem Steel declined to join the league. Uh, that for Despite their success on the field, the club had difficulties attracting crowds in the Christmas City, and so they wanted a more uh, equitable distribution of gate receipts to ensure their financial survival. So we know that gate receipts were an important part of the financial picture, but figures are enormously difficult to come by. Of the 14 home games that the Falcos played in the 1921-22 season, the newspapers only mention four specific figures as regards to attendances, 700, 800, and about 1,000 uh, for the ASL, and then 250 for the National Challenge Cup. Other times, the reports are kind of maddeningly vague, uh, one of the smallest crowds, a good-sized crowd, and one of the smallest ever. So we don't have a lot of information about average attendance or, uh, or, or attendance figures overall. It's not unreasonable to assume that the Falcos probably never managed to attract a crowd of more than about 1,000 people to any ASL game. This would give them a gate of about $600 based on what we know about ticket prices, uh, from this particular period. And so it seems pretty clear that they were not making a great deal of money uh, through, uh, through ticket sales. In many ways, this is 
maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that. The population of Holyoke in 1920 was about 60,000 people. And this made it 30 times smaller than Philadelphia, which also had one of the first ASL clubs, and 93 times smaller than New York, which was home to several other clubs. Even Fall River, the interstate rivals, were uh, that city was about twice as big as Holyoke. In addition to the to the low population, there were other contributing factors. Many of the games were played in the rain, the snow, the ice. Also, Massachusetts had a law that prevented games from being played on Sundays. After the Falcos withdrew from the ASL, they continued to play in local and regional competitions. In 1924, they even joined another semi-professional league called the National Soccer League, which, despite its name, was really just limited to the state of Massachusetts. But once again, they withdrew from that league after only one season, probably again because of the costs involved. In 1925-1926 season, however, they returned to the top of the regional league, but by 1927 they had disbanded the newspaper reporting that they found it difficult to assemble a strong team and thought it best to withdraw. On the bright side, the, the replacement team in the league was from the town of Ludlow, a Portuguese team called Lusitano, and that club still exists to this day. How then ultimately do we sum up the story of the Falcos? If all we look at is their disastrous performance in the ASL, we might dismiss them simply as a footnote uh, to the history of professional soccer in the United States. By doing so, however, I think we miss out on the rich history, uh, the rich soccer tradition that existed in the city of Holyoke and in western Massachusetts for many years in in the first half of the 20th century and really continuing down to the present day. The story of the Falcos also tells us something about the challenges involved in researching soccer history. Uh, We we discussed the lack of sources, generally speaking, and the frustrating limitations of some of the sources that we do have. Things are improving, however, because as more and more materials are digitized, it means that it's much easier to search, search large numbers of newspapers and other materials, and it's become a bit easier to uncover the history of uh, soccer locally and nationally and already there have been great gains made in uncovering more of Soccer History USA. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US.